0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to Sports Time Machine here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Anna Kagaregis, and each week we head down memory lane and I take you back in time and remember some of the greatest moments in sports history. Leave your flux capacitor at home. All you need to do is subscribe to the show on iTunes or any of your other favorite directories like Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. What makes a great sports story? Sure, you have athletes who dominate the game. They are masters at their craft. But sometimes it can be lonely and boring at the top. A good sports story needs adversity, a great rivalry. Roger Federer versus Rafael Nadal at Wimbledon in 2008 has been called the greatest tennis match ever played. I'll talk about that final with someone who was in the stands and played the game at the highest level himself. Former tennis professional and analyst Brad Gilbert will join me in the show. He's also coached some of the biggest names in the sport and knows both these players really well. We'll discuss that match, the rivalry between Federer and Nadal, And also a unique story between him and Rafa that year that I guarantee you will not get from anybody else. But before we get into what was arguably the greatest tennis game of all time, let's set up the scene. Starting in 1877, Wimbledon is the oldest tennis tournament in the world and one of the four of the Grand Slams, with the others being the Australian Open, the French Open, and the U.S. Open. It is commonly regarded as the most prestigious of the tournaments and is the only one of the four that is still played on grass. There is careful consideration taken when it comes to the courts. Each blade of grass is cut precisely. And someone who has been known as a cut above the rest on grass is Roger Federer. Federer is considered by many as one of the greatest tennis players of all time. The Swiss player has won 20 Grand Slam singles titles, the most in history by a male player. Roger made his professional debut in 1999 at the Grand Slam tournaments of both Paris and Wimbledon. He put the world on notice after winning his first ATP tournament in 2001 and in the same year, beating his former idol Pete Sampras at Wimbledon. He didn't win the title that year, but he has since won a record eight men's singles titles at Wimbledon. For a while, it seemed that Federer was unbeatable. That is, until a young Spaniard named Rafael Nadal came along. In 2007, Federer edged out Nadal in five sets to capture his fifth straight title at Wimbledon. An exciting match in its own right. But no one expected the next Fidal final in the following year to be even more exciting than the last. In fact, it is regarded as the most exciting match in the history of the sport. Federer and Nadal were once again in the limelight. So let's head back to jolly old London, England. Here's sound from the past.
1: There's a new man at the helm Nadal, of three, men's seven, Tennis. Two, six, Rafael six, four, Nadal. Federer's magnificent run ends. Nadal is the top man. Memories of Pat Cash in 1987 straight to dad and mum and uncle only they know all the work that it has taken to achieve this excellence Spanish dignitaries receiving a sweaty handshake from the champion and why not no need to feel sorry for Roger Federer. It's been a wonderful run. He played a fantastic match, and he may well be back, but this is Nadal's moment. And the fact that you beat Roger here on centre court in arguably one of the greatest finals we've ever seen, does that make this even more special? For sure. uh, When Roger here after five years, I lost the last two finals, close finals, but... He's still the number one, he's still the best, he's still five-time champions here, and right now I have one, so for me it's very, very, very important. And now, having shared this contest together, they now share the limelight, and rightly so. There's two champions there, no six in a row for Roger Federer, but the first French Open Wimbledon double since Bjorn Borg.
0: Sound courtesy of NBC and the BBC. You know, after losing 2007, Nadal started out fast, clinching the first two sets 6-4 to four each. Federer became frustrated with himself, but things began to look up for the Swiss star. Roger had won back-to-back tiebreaks in the third and fourth to set up what would be an epic fifth set. The match was temporarily paused at 5-4 because of a rain delay. Daylight was fading, but Nadal broke through and wandering during Twilight. It was the second longest championship match in Wimbledon history at 4 hours and 48 minutes. And with two rain delays, the match stretched over seven hours. A true test of wills. But now we turn back the clock again to when the Swiss Maestro and the Spanish Bull were at their best. Let's go back to July 2008. Roads? Well we're going, we don't need roads. all right now we're going back in time with former tennis player now analyst he's coached some of the biggest stars including andre agassi he's an olympic medalist best-selling author and you can listen to him on his new podcast winning uglier which we'll learn more about in a bit and i'm just scratching the surface when it comes to his resume the one and only brad gilbert bg how are you
2: Nice to hear your voice. All good, knock on wood. You know, in these challenging times, uh, the Gilberts are okay.
0: Good. Well, you got to say hi to Mrs. G for me. I, I absolutely love like talking to her back and forth on Twitter. I haven't done it in a while, so I may just have to reach out again. But for people who don't know, I had the opportunity to work with you at 95.7 The Game for a while. And I'll be honest, it was probably one of my favorite times at the radio station. You tell the most amazing stories and have had some of the Best experiences, and I'm a tennis fan. I played tennis, so for me, it was a total honor working with you. So I'm really excited to have you here today.
2: I appreciate that. It's very nice words of you. And early in the morning stuff, you know, you got to get your stories going. When, you know, then you you did your time early morning, so you know about stories. Got to come out.
0: Exactly, exactly. Got my East Bay pride right here. But uh, what are you up to right now, BG?
2: I am for the longest time, I, I may be since a senior in high school. I've been in one place. Uh, so since like, I came back from Australia in first week of February, I did a quick trip to Florida, like two days later, and I've been home every single night since then. So tennis obviously since March, tour-wise is on hiatus. Right. Um, and there's some exhibitions going now. There's a hopeful, I mean, fingers crossed, I mean, they're trying to make a bubble, not quite like the bubble in Orlando, but we're going to get some tennis, potentially um, the Cincinnati tournament's moving to New York and the Open, which we'll you know, be doing both, but certainly will be challenging times and uh, got this new podcast going, uh, Winning Uglier, that's now out on Apple and it's on Spotify. And I'm doing the easy part, just talking away, and my son is producing and editing. And so all of a sudden, he's like, man, Dad, this takes a lot of hours. Yep. You know, I'm like, why don't we just go live to, you know, cut down the editing?
0: <laughs> I'm excited about this. And I know one of the things that you actually posted about Winning Uglier was you were asking people for questions because you're also, you know, kind of teaching people a little bit about tennis as well on there I have a question for you right off the bat before we get into the other stuff today my question for you is I have a son who's seven almost eight years old I'm trying to get him into playing tennis I played when I was in high school he's played other sports but I really think it'd be up his alley as a seven-year-old who's never played the sport who's also a perfectionist very competitive what's your advice for parents trying to get their kids into the sport?
2: the big thing for me is play a variety of sports at a young age Mm -hmm. and fun factor is so big for kids now, you know, and if you get them into tennis, I I say it's always better to do less, but more days, Okay. you know, better to do less time, you know, more days. And everything in sports is about kids having fun. And, you know, with the, you know, the green dot balls, the phone dot, ball, you know, the, 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 the kids balls, I, it, you can have success earlier, but the key to me is not putting a kid all in like so many parents are doing now, it you know, whether or not it's lacrosse, whether or not it's baseball, it's tennis. When I was a kid, I mean, tennis was my main sport. I started playing when I was three and played all, but I played basketball. I played baseball. I played, I played everything. So, you know, you had that release, but I see so many, you know, kids now and talk to parents and, well, everybody's telling us we, we got to go all in. And it's just like it's so much pressure to go all in on any sport at eight. So I say make sure you get him going in a lot of things and he has fun. That's the key.
0: I love that. I love that. And I think just let kids be kids again. Now, speaking of something else that's fun, we're going to go back and turn back the clock to July of 2008, the men's finals at Wimbledon got Roger Federer. He was a defending champion on course for his sixth straight title. First off, talking about Roger, how dominant was he at that time when he first hit the scene?
2: I saw him early because in 03, I started coaching Roddick. Mm-hmm. And he beat Roddick in the semis and then went on to win his first Wimbledon. Then in 04, he beat Roddick in the final. So I saw him in those first couple of years. And then... He just was getting better at that time, like all parts of his game. By 0- 06, the first time that he beat Rafa in the final, it was like, I felt like, wow, I'm not sure this guy is beatable. But by 07, so for his fourth title, he beat Rafa in five sets. And I actually felt like watching that match and thinking back on that match that Rafa was right there and it wouldn't have surprised me if he won that match. And I was amazed how much he improved from the year before. So the 08 final, he's going for six. Borg had won five straight, you know, 76 through 80. And then he loses to McEnroe, a lefty who he beat the year before. Now you've got the third straight year these two guys are playing. And I remember going into that Match. Remember, the roof was off, so it was a completely different look. That was the last year of that. The next year we, you know, got the roof. I, I actually felt like it's one of those popcorn matches. I wasn't sure who was going to win. But if, you know, kind of like if you really had to ask me, I was still leaning that Fed would find a way because, you know, that's his surface. And after the first two sets, I, I, I had an unbelievable seat. I'm sitting there with Chris Fowler. I'm saying, God, are we going to see Rafa just take him down in straight sets? And I, 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 w- I wouldn't have believed that. I wouldn't have thought that. But then the next, like, seven hours maybe was, like, the most dramatic I've ever seen in anything because we had a couple of rain delays. We had said tough out a four-set breaker after winning a third set breaker, 9-7, and it felt like after that four set, it was it was starting to get ominous. We had one more rain delay, and everything pointed to Fed was going to win again. And then that last break wasn't that long. And I remember, man, you know, because we're still waiting, you know, to do SportsCenter after the match interview the winner. And I was thinking, God, I think when they come out. I'm thinking, you know, we don't got that much time to play out here, and Fed is going to sprint through it. And thinking through, you know, the the match a little bit, and I remember four days before the tournament started, I was, you know, on the practice courts and and kind of floating around, and I told Rafa, I said, when you win this tournament, I would like your stick so I can put it in my tennis shop and say that I got your first win-win stick. Oh, and really? I, kind of, I kind of forgot about it then, Like I had to ask him about that four days before the tournament. Because, <laughs> you know, I've got a few sticks at my shop and then, you know, I kind of forgot about it. And then all of a sudden, in that fifth set, I kind of remember thinking, God, I remember asking him about that stick. It would have been nice if he would have won it. And then Chris Fowler hits me on the arm he goes, no, he's going to tough this thing out. And it's seven all in the fifth. It was, I mean, visibility was faint i mean there was you know i thought for sure we were going to stop and even the referee came out on the court and probably the worst feeling for the players is like like we got two games left Mm -hmm. and then right the Rafa breaks him at seven all in the fifth and i think he finished that match at eight seven the only thing that was making it light was the cell phone light, you know, the cameras. Everybody right. was taking the, you know, the pictures and it was like, it looked like a flashing going off. So as soon as the match is over, get the text, you know, me and Chris I got to get sprint back into the studio, you know, to do like an hour show. And then we got to wait for the winner, Rafa. And it, it must have taken like a good two hours to get in there. And he walks in the studio with the stick and just gives it to me. And he said, BT, this is for what you said before the tournament started. So I had that stick, his winning stick, in, the, uh, the te- uh, in my tennis shop in Green Gray over in Rim County. That's, so that's a clear, you know, memory.
0: Maybe he also thought, though, that you had the faith in him. What an amazing story. And just to think, as a young guy coming into the scene, obviously he had played Federer before, but maybe that extra confidence from you actually gave him that little extra spark.
2: You know, sometimes in a hype match, you know, whether or not it's boxing, whether or not it's a huge football game, sometimes the hype doesn't live up to the expectations. This was one of those matches that the drama was... For the last three sets, you felt like at any moment something could change from this, and it was one of those things that it was almost when it was over, you couldn't believe it was over because I, I actually, you know, just felt like Fed just wasn't going to go away. It actually was. It almost seemed fitting that are we going to have a sleepover on this thing and have to come <laughs> back the next day? But I, but I felt like I remember Chris said to me when we were leaving. He goes. 30 years from now we will remember we sat here and we were at this match every point this is one of those that you will never forget and I you know and it was the third time they had played in a row at that tournament it was the first time since Becker and Edberg did that in the 90s and and just to say that you know I got to sit there and from a fan's perspective you know because I'm not, not coaching anybody and it was just watching it unfold and it was phenomenal probably wasn't you know like people saying the Borg McEnroe of 1980 the right. people that were at that match said this is the kind of match you'll remember forever so that's the greatness of sports
0: do you think that was the greatest tennis match ever or just at Wimbledon or would you still say that maybe Borg and McEnroe was better
2: the Borg McEnroe match was a phenomenal close encounter as well I would say the level of tennis was better in in, in the the Rafa-Fed match, Mm -hmm. you know, 28 years later. Uh, And then Fed fan, wherever he plays in the world, it's a home game. never It's like Derek Jeter in in Yankee Stadium. That's Fed everywhere. Also, Rafa has a huge fan base. So it was probably as excited as a crowd as I've ever seen getting into a match. And then you never think in your lifetime you'd see more drama in a final. And then 11 years later, Fed is in the final last year. Mm -hmm. And he plays, you know, a tiebreaker in the fifth. He's got match points and loses to Djokovic. And that crowd was probably 99.9% Fed. I've never seen a more pro-Fed crowd at Wimbledon. And that was incredible drama. So those three, you know, Wimbledon finals... You know, like, you know, 50 years from now, people look up on the board and say, I I was there. You know, those were all as dramatic. They had the players that you want somebody to win, maybe somebody you root for to lose. And then the the, the level of tennis made it go to another level.
0: Yeah, it seems like the names that you hear right now, you you, you brought up uh, Djokovic as well. But you have Federer and Rafa who they go hand in hand right now. How did that day actually spark their rivalry and what's their relationship been like since that day? The sports,
2: the evolution now that so many players, it used to be when you turned 30 in a lot of sports, you were on the downside. And when you got 35, you were almost dead and buried. When I was a kid, I remember some older football players and baseball players, you know, at 35, you were hobbled. Um, and to see I, this trifecta rivalry, you know, they've brought out the best in each other, and I think they've pushed each other to just unprecedented heights. And I think that, that in doing that, they've suppressed just about everybody else below them, other than Murray and Stan, you know, winning some slams. And obviously that no one young is one when we don't have anybody under 31 with a slam now on the men's side. So I, I don't think they're feeling sorry for anybody, but I think more than anything, it's the level that they've been able to push each other. And Roger's still at almost 39, the the way he's still playing. And I think it's because of that, you know what? He still feels like, hey, maybe Tom Brady's 42. Right. He's still doing his thing. We're still seeing many athletes. Serena's almost 39. She's still doing amazing things. So it's not unprecedented now in some other sports that you see in some Olympians now at older ages that, that we've never seen. So I think the technology and diet and all your you know, and these teams that they develop, you know, to make them better, I think has pushed the envelope for athletes to, to do things at a much later age now.
0: No, it makes complete sense. You're right, because the bodies have changed. We are taking more care of our bodies compared to the past. Now, just kind of looking at these two, though, another thing that's interesting is how many times they've played over the years. They've played, well, I think it was around 40 times that they faced each other. Nadal has been the king of clay. Federer has been one that's preferred grass. For people who aren't as into tennis and as knowledgeable at tennis, what's the big difference between playing on those surfaces?
2: Well, the the biggest difference now is there's not a massive difference like 30 years ago. So the grass massively changed in from 2002 to 2003. And the grass used to be, you dropped the ball and it landed around your ankle. And it used to be serving volley and much quicker, much more difficult to have rallies, but they dramatically changed the surface, slowed it down. Guys can play from the back and the the clay used to be much more molasses slow and it and they used to use heavier balls. They've actually quickened up the clay. So I, I do think that there's not the massive you know, there obviously the ball still bounces much lower on grass. It's it's you know, the movement is more difficult. But it's not certainly not like 30 years ago, the the difference of it. Because I think now if you're really good, you're good on anything. And it used to be, in my day, you had grass court specialists. You had indoor specialists. You had clay specialists. So now there's not a lot of specialists, which is probably much healthier for the game.
0: You know, you've been one of the top tennis players in the world. You've played in the Olympics. You've played alongside some of the greatest tennis players we've seen. So now looking at these two and, you know, adding any others in the mix, who do you think right now is the greatest tennis player? Can you say there's one greatest tennis player of all time?
2: Well, since 2011, there's no doubt that Djokovic has been the dominant player. I mean, he's got an incredible head-to-head versus both of those two guys. And it's the most asked question ever, the Fed fans are so hardcore, it doesn't matter what anybody does, they'll think it's their guy. Same with the Rafa fans. Um, Joker has a much smaller fan base, but potentially we're still five years away from knowing. I think there's a, a legitimate chance. Obviously, with this pandemic, we don't know how long we'll be interrupted by, but I would not be shocked if Djokovic got somewhere between 23 and 25 slams. And I would think that he has a great chance if we do get back to normal and playing, you know, like it was before. I think he has a really good chance to have the most and potentially Fed might end up with the least of the three, but his fans will still say if he ended up with the least he's the most dominant. But I do think at the end of the day, you know, we're still five years away from knowing, but if Joker does, have head to head on both of them and the most grand slams hard to argue with that. But at the moment it's 2019, 17, but uh, you know, that's like one of those things normally when you ask everybody's retired, but they're all still active. So hopefully we'll get to watch it unfold.
0: Yeah. Hopefully we'll get to see them play sooner rather than later. BG what does the future of tennis look like to you?
2: You know what? Like all of sports, everything is getting better. Everybody's getting more athletic, and everybody's pushing the envelope to get better. Um, And sometimes it's great to kind of see the trends where we're going and kind of see what the next evolution is to becoming better. And sometimes you almost don't want to know. But after Pete retired, when he retired Sampras – uh, with 14 slams. You would have never thought that so quickly that we would have got these three. You, you're, you, you know, so often you say, or your grandparents would say, I saw this guy. We've never seen any better. I think that's the cool thing about potential. You just never know where or who's coming next. So, we never thought like 20 years ago, a guy from San Mateo out of Michigan, who wasn't that much of a star in college, would become the greatest QB ever, Tom Brady. Mm-hmm. So that, that that's the greatness and evolution of sports. You just don't know.
0: I gotta say, I love the nickname for the rivalry though between Federer and Nadal, Fidal. Do you get, do you actually use that in any of your broadcasts? Um, yeah, not so but, much. I mean,
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's fairly easy, um, but. I mean, right now I call him RF 2.0. If he if he if he won if he won one more, he'd be Brachak. He'd be 21. Uh, and I, I just call him Vamos Rafa.
0: I love it. Well, thank you, BG. You are absolutely amazing. And where can people again listen to Winning Uglier?
2: You can hear Winning Uglier on Spotify and Apple. We'll be on once a week, and we aim to help club players and juniors. And we're an interactive show, you know, uh, so we'll try to get as many questions. My son is running the board and picking the questions. But we're, we're going to have a little fun, and hopefully he'll, he'll cut down from like 12 hours to maybe five hours so he can <laughs> pop the show out. He says, Dad, you got the easy part.
0: Oh, I love it. No, just keep playing the whole thing. We want to hear it all, BG. All your stories are great, so I love them. Thank you so much for joining me today and an amazing story about what happened at Wimbledon. That I I really wanted to check out. You got to post up the picture of the stick.
2: Yeah, uh, the stick is there in Green Bay. I got it in a glass case. So I've got a lot of like nice little mementos, but. That one's pretty special. I've got a bunch of Andre stuff, and I've even got a Fed stick where he's worn a Serena stick. So I try to collect, you know, a few collectibles.
0: Fantastic. You weren't coaching Roddick at the time, but were you rooting for him at that point, or did you have any, anyone in the game that you were rooting for? Or was it just kind of like I was rooting for Rafa so that way maybe I could see if I could actually get the stick?
2: You know, it's funny. As we talked about those three Wimbledon, another Wimbledon, one of the toughest beats was Roddick losing that 16-14 in the 5th in 2009, the year after, you know, uh, Fed lost that match in uh, 2 And he was up one set and had 6-2 in the second set breaker to go up two sets to none. And I remember one thing that Roddick said about in the summer, he was still stewing over, losing that match. That was a tough beat. And his mailman. I was thinking the same thing the whole, whole fifth set. His shirt was soaked. He was always, like, you know, sweating puddles from his hat. And then the, he said his mailman gave him a lecture. The reason why he lost that match is because he didn't change shirts in the fifth set. And his shirt got too heavy. I was like, yeah, smart mailman, but maybe not the right delivery. <laughs>
0: Everyone's a coach, I guess. BG, you are the best. Thanks for coming on.
2: Yeah, have a great afternoon, Anna.
0: Oh, he's the best. A big thank you again to Brad Gilbert for jumping on. I told you, he says the best stories. So make sure you check out his podcast, Winning Uglier, on Apple and Spotify. Great stories. And he's got a keen eye for the game. I mean, of course he does. On top of playing, he coached stars like Andre Agassi, Andy Roddick, Andy Murray, Nishikori, and he's got a lot of great nicknames for all of them. You know, the golden age of tennis is known as a time when there was a revival in the sports popularity. And that's credited to the big four. Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, and Andy Murray. Right now, Djokovic, or who Brad Gilbert calls the Joker, is ranked number one in the world. Five years younger than Federer, he's catching him on the Grand Slam front quickly. And Nadal just has one less major title than Federer at 19. They rank first and second on men's all-time majors. One, it's really interesting when you break down their rivalry. They've played each other forty times. Rafa leading head-to-heads twenty-four to sixteen, and as the king of clay, he leads on clay courts fourteen to two. Federer leads on the hard court eleven to nine. Fourteen of those matches have been in Grand Slams. Nadal leads six and zero at the French Open, three to one at the Australian Open, while Federer leads three to one at Wimbledon and we know which game that one loss was on the grass. Interestingly enough, the two have never met at the U.S. Open. But think about it. From 2006 to 2008, they played each other in every French Open and Wimbledon final. That is dominance, and that is a rivalry. Nadal became the first man since Bjorn Borg in 1980 to win Wimbledon and the French Open in the same year. This match in 2008 was the peak of their rivalry. It was the first time Nadal broke through against Federer on a surface that wasn't clay. It not only proved that Nadal could play on more than one court, he also stopped Federer from holding the record of most consecutive Wimbledon titles. The following year, Federer won his sixth title at Wimbledon. Imagine if he had beaten Nadal and won seven in a row. How would his legacy have looked? Would it have changed Rafa's? Their feud is one of the most iconic rivalries in tennis. But where does it rank to you? And how does it rank in sports as a whole? So now, I'd like to hear from you. Where does their rivalry rank? And who is the greatest male tennis player in the game? Years from now, will we look back and say it was one of these two? Or will Djokovic prove to be the most well-rounded of the three? Let me know by reaching out on Twitter at Anna Kagaregis, that's K-A-G-A-R-A-K-I-S or by using the hashtag Time Machine. Another notch for Roger is that he's turning 39 next month. He just had knee surgery, but plans to come back and play in 2021. Just imagine if some of the greats in the past had played as long as athletes now. Athletes are redefining the age barrier. Bjorn Borg left the game at just 26 years old, an 11-time Grand Slam winner. Then there's my fellow Greek Pete Sampras, He had the most slams before Federer at 14, and he retired at 32 years old. That was considered old for the sport at the time. Longevity is another argument for Federer, but only time will tell who will be known as the greatest player of all time. But something that has never changed over the years are the traditions at Wimbledon. The championships has the strictest dress code of all major Grand Slam events. Players have to strictly wear white. No off-white or cream. And that coat has only gotten more rigid over the years. But there's also a sweet tradition that many are familiar with. Spectators and players are offered strawberries and cream as a typical stand food. Nearly 9,000 servings are prepared per day. And they are only the highest quality strawberries from the county of Kent. The berries are picked the day before, arrive at Wimbledon at 5.30 in the morning, where they are inspected and each hull is removed. Each year, 28,000 kilograms of strawberries and 7,000 liters of cream are eaten. That's more than 61,000 pounds of strawberries. 61,729 to be exact. Had to convert that. Well, I know what I'm in the mood for now. Hope you learned a little something new today. And thank you again for listening to Sports Time Machine. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and rate Sports Time Machine on iTunes. We're available on all your favorite directories, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find the show at Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Anna Kagariukes and on Instagram at Anna Kags. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Well, time flies when you're having fun. Thanks for heading down memory lane with me. I'm Anna Kagaraikis, and we'll talk soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.